Uh, most of the time, I like to find a picture that sort of matches the, the theme of, of the passage that, that we're going to study. Some of those, sometimes that's easier than, than others. This was a hard one. You'll see why when we read this rather crazy passage that we're going to read this morning. But uh, when I thought of David's life and where David is at as we open 2 Samuel 14, this was the idea that came to my mind. Because David, David has to feel a little bit like this guy at this point in his administration. David, he had been trucking along as king of Israel up until 2 Samuel chapter 11. He's got some amazing promises from God. Things have been going so well until David fell into some very serious sin and was told some very serious consequences would result. And now he's starting to walk through those consequences. Uh, two of his sons are seeming, seeming to be in a, in a contest to see who can out their dad the worst and David has to, to feel like he is looking over and seeing the wheels come off of his kingdom. Last week, we read 2 Samuel chapter 13. It's an awful story. David's oldest son, a man named Amnon, the crown prince, he, was, uh, uh, he attacked his half-sister, we'll say. He assaulted her. A girl named Tamar. David was passive. He did not seek justice for Tamar. And so another of David's son, the, the second oldest in the line of secession anyway, a man named Absalom, he sought justice for his full sister and he murdered Amnon and fled into, into exile. And so where we pick up today, one son has been murdered by another, that son, Absalom, the next in line to be king, or should be, is in exile, living in the land of his maternal grandfather, Geshur is the, the name of the place where he lives, and David has to feel like just the wheels are coming off. We're going to read chapter 14, I'll warn you ahead of time, it's long, but it makes up for it by being bizarre. Uh, it's one of those passages where you read it and go, how could we possibly get anything we could learn from that? But if you read it some more, maybe get some help from, from other folks who have studied this passage, you start to see, man, this is kind of a contemporary story. There's some real things we can learn for, for, for real life in our postmodern world from this crazy story. Let's read it together. 2 Samuel chapter 14. If I turn my clicker on, we'll get started. Here we go. 2 Samuel chapter 14 reads this way. Now Joab, the son of Zariah, perceived that the king's heart was inclined toward Absalom. So Joab sent to Tekoa and brought a wise or a talented woman from there and said to her, please pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments now and do not anoint yourself with oil, but be like a woman who has been mourning for the dead many days. Then go to the king and speak to him in this manner. 
And in that manner, Joab put the words in her mouth. Now, when the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king, she fell on her face to the ground, prostrated herself and said, help, O king. And the king said to her, what's your trouble? And she answered, truly, I am a widow for my husband is dead. Your maidservant had two sons, but the two of them struggled together in the field and there was no one to separate them. So one struck the other and killed him. Now behold, the whole family has risen against me. And they say, hand over the one who has struck his brother that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed and destroy the heir also. Thus they will extinguish my coal which is left so as to leave my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Then the king said to the woman, go to your house and I will give orders concerning you. The woman of Tekoa said to the king, oh my lord the king, The iniquity is on me and my father's house, but the king and his throne are guiltless. And so the king said, whoever speaks to you, bring him to me, and he will not touch you anymore. Then she said, please let the king remember the Lord your God so that the avenger of blood will not continue to destroy. Otherwise, they will destroy my son. And David said, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Verse 12, and the woman said, Please let your maidservant speak a word to my lord the king. And he said, speak. The woman said, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in speaking this word, the king is as one who is guilty in that the king does not bring back his banished one, Absalom. For we will surely die and we are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away life, but plans ways so that the banished one will not be cast out from him. Now the reason I have come to speak this word to my Lord the King is that the people have made me afraid. And so your maidservant said, let me now speak to the King. Perhaps the King will perform the request of his maidservant. For the King will hear and deliver his maidservant from the hand of the man who would destroy both me and my son from the inheritance of God. Verse 17. Then I said, Please let the word of my Lord the King be comforting. For as the angel of God, so is my Lord the King to discern good and evil. And may the Lord your God be with you. And the King answered and said to the woman, Please do not hide anything from me that I am about to speak to you. And the woman said, Let my Lord the King please speak. And so the King said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all this? And the woman replied, as your soul lives, my Lord, the king, no one can turn to the right or to the left from anything that my Lord, the king has spoken. Indeed, it was your servant, Joab, who commanded me. And it was he who put all these words into my mouth in order to change the appearance of things. Your servant, Joab, has done this thing. But you, my Lord, are wise, like the wisdom of the angel of God to know all that is in the earth. Then the king said to Joab, behold, now I will surely do this thing. Go, therefore, bring back the young man, Absalom. Joab fell on his face to the ground, prostrated himself, and blessed the king. Then Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, O my lord the king, and that the king has performed the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. However, the king had said, Let him turn, return to his own house. Let him not see my face. And so Absalom turned to his own house and did not see the king's face. Now, all, now in all Israel was no one as handsome as Absalom, so highly praised. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no defect in Absalom. 
when he cut the hair of his head, and it was at the end of every year that he got a haircut, for it was heavy on him, so he cut it. Absalom weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels by the king's weight, or five pounds. To Absalom, there were born three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a woman of beautiful appearance. Now Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem and did not see the king's face. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to see Absalom. So Absalom sent again a second time, but Joab would not come. Therefore, Absalom said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. And so Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and came to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? And Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent for you, saying, Come here, that I may send you to the king to say, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to still be there. Now, therefore, let me see the king's face. And if there's iniquity in me, let him put me to death. So when Joab came to the king and told him, he called for Absalom. Thus he came to the king and prostrated himself on his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. That's our passage. Any questions? Are we clear there? Are you good? That's a crazy story, isn't it? It's, and it's really hard to even understand what's going on. It starts difficult and stays difficult. One thing that makes it difficult to understand is David's heart for his murderous son, Absalom. Twice at the end of the previous chapter, and then once again in verse 1, we read that David's heart goes out to Absalom, even though Absalom just deceived David into playing a role so that Absalom could murder the crown prince of Israel. But yet, it reads like David's heart still goes out to Absalom. He wants Absalom to be around, yet he won't send and bring Absalom home. So which is it? Does, does David love Absalom and want him around? Or does he want him to remain in exile? And the answer to that question is yes, both. And I don't think it's that hard to understand. If we'll try to put ourselves in, in David's shoes, here's the situation he's in. Absalom is his son. And no matter how bad your son messes up, he's still your son. And he loves him. And David, he does see the wheels coming off of his family and his kingdom. But he sure wishes things were different. His heart still goes out to him. But David is, is king. And David, his mistake of the previous chapter was passivity. Toward his guilty son, he refused to seek justice. And that just made things worse. And so David... He knows, he seems to know, at least at first, there has to be consequences. So yes, he loves Absalom. But Absalom's going to stay in exile, at least at first. Now, there are forces within Israel, though, that as they look around at, at aging David, 
And it was this crazy thing in the ancient world. World leaders didn't tend to live into their 80s. More on that later. But David is aging. And people are starting to look at the other sons of David and decide who would be the best one to be king. And most people seem to think Absalom. Absalom, by all accounts, looks the part. And he's apparently charismatic and a capable leader. He's very talented. There are forces in Israel that want Absalom back home. And among those forces is a guy named Joab. We've seen him in this story before. He is David's nephew. He's also David's top military commander. And whether Absalom has somehow put Joab up to this or or other forces, or if Joab's acting alone, we don't really know. But what we do know, the bulk of this chapter is... Joab putting a plan into place to get David to change his mind about Absalom's exile, to allow Absalom to come home. Joab puts into place what I'm going to call the Nathan plan. And here's why I call it that. You remember when David fell into sin with Bathsheba and then David murdered her husband Uriah And then God sent Nathan the prophet to confront David. Do you know that story? How did God and Nathan go about trying to change David's mind and heart toward his sin? They told him a parable. They told him a story. To try and get David to to see a similar situation detached from his own life. Get him to pass judgment on that other situation so that Nathan could say, actually, David, you are that man. The person you just passed judgment against, you are being just like that. Don't you see? Joab tries to do the same thing here. Joab figures, hey, that worked great with God and Nathan to change David's mind. I'm going to do the same thing again. So he goes out and he hires an actress. We don't know her name. She's just called the woman of Tekoa. She's apparently a talented actress. We're told in verse 3, Joab put the words in her mouth, which just means he writes the script. And he pulls the strings to get her an audience with the king, and, and then she dives into this scenario that's not real. It's all made up, and, and Joab has concocted this thing, and it's to convince J, uh, David to let Absalom come home. And the the scenario goes like this. She goes in with, to the king and she pretends to be a widow in mourning, which means so her husband has died, but that's not the death she's mourning currently because there's been another death in her family. And she tells a story about her only two sons. The story seems to be inspired by the Cain and Abel story, if you are familiar with that one. Because she says, my two boys, they were out in a field alone. They got in a little fracas. And one of my sons wound up killing the other son. And then he's on the run. Doesn't that sound like uh, Cain? She goes on to say what makes matters worse is my extended family, or probably my late husband's family, they want to kill my only remaining son. But she tells David, they they say, they pretend it's because they care about justice, but that's not what this is about. This is about greed. 
They want my husband's inheritance for themselves. And if we know the culture, what, she's, what David is hearing is, is her saying that I am going to be left desolate. My husband's gone. My other son's gone. If they kill my only remaining son, the whole family hates me. They're going to take my, my husband's land and I'm going to be uh, really struggling. That's sort of the story. You've got to help me here, king. Well, in the next little section, David sides. Uh, he sides with the widow. I'm really abbreviating this for time's sake, but David just says, tell you what, anybody that hurts you or him is going to have to answer to me. Okay? He sides with the widow. No one can kill the boy. No one can hurt you. And now it's time for this woman to have her you are that man moment with David. In verses 12 through 20, she sort of unmasks the real reason for their meeting. She accuses David of hypocrisy. She says, well, if you would allow my banished son who murdered his brother to come back home and be offered protection, why won't you do that for your son, Absalom? Then she says, uh, here's, let's check out this reasoning in verse 14. Certainly we all must die. We're like water spilled on the ground that can't be gathered up again. And God does not take away life. Instead, he devises way for the banished to be restored. Here's what she says. You know, David, Amnon's death wasn't all that big a deal. We're all going to die anyway. And we're like water spilled that can't be picked back up. You can't bring Amnon back by punishing Absalom. And besides, God is not in the business of separation. God is in the business of forgiveness and restoration. So you should let Absalom come home. You hear her argument there? In verse 17, I think she mentions everyone else in the people. She says, you know, David, everyone loves Absalom. The people are really mad about this. He's very popular. I know you'll do the right thing. And at that point, David turns to the woman and says, did Joab put you up to this? <laughs> and she goes, Okay, yeah, this was all Joab's idea. In verse 21, the scene shifts to a conversation between Joab and his uncle, King David. David has obviously called Joab in, and he announces to Joab that he's going to cave. He's going to allow Absalom to come home. Joab's very appreciative but Absalom's return to Jerusalem is not full restoration. David is going to put Absalom into an ancient version of like house arrest. Instead of being exiled in a foreign land, he's going to sort of be exiled at home. 
He has to live in his own house. And David says, he cannot see my face, which just means he can't be a part of this. He's not coming back into the royal family, the administration, the line of succession. So he lets him come home, but he doesn't restore him into the family business, so to speak. Now, verses 25, 6, and 7 happen next, and they seem really out of place. There's a break in the story. The plot line is interrupted. This is like a parenthesis so that we as readers can be informed of how good-looking Absalom is. It just seems like a really silly thing to have here, but it's not. We're being given some, some valuable information about this guy, Absalom. We're told first that Absalom is the mostest, handsomestest man in all of Israel, and everyone agrees. Now, if you read the book of 1 Samuel, who was the other man who was described as the most handsome man in all of Israel? That was King Saul. Is it a flattering comparison to compare someone to King Saul? No. No. King Saul was a failure and a jerk. The next thing we're told about Absalom is about this thick, bushy head of hair this guy has. He only gets a haircut once a year. When he gets a haircut, five pounds of hair comes off this guy's head. That's impressive. I once got a haircut and only five hairs came off of my head, but that has nothing to do with today's sermon. That's just my own bitterness. Is there, another, is there another Old Testament character you can think of whose hair was very important to his story? Who's that? Samson. That's not a flattering comparison either. Samson and Delilah guy. Samson, also a tremendous jerk. Absalom is painted like he's a mixture of King Saul and Samson. These are two men who looked the part and were physically imposing, but had no integrity and did not care at all what God said was best. They used their talents, their gifts, their power to just pursue what they wanted, and they didn't care who else got hurt or run over or anything else. That's Absalom. We're told at the end he, he had sons. Again, that's a sign of blessing. It makes him look the part. He has a daughter whose name was Tamar. Maybe she was born after the, the attack uh, that's now at least four years ago. But there's the sympathy card that's on his resume. Or, and some people like that he's a man who will stand up for justice. There's a reminder there. So that parenthesis is closed. But again, I mentioned this last week. It bears repeating again. Giftedness and talent without integrity and godliness are actually dangerous things. Because talent and giftedness without integrity just lead us very effectively in bad directions. The last scene of the story we get, starts in verse 28. We get back to the plot line. And from there to the end of the chapter, 
we see what we probably could have guessed ahead of time. Being just home was never going to be enough for Absalom. Absalom doesn't want to be home. Absalom wants to be king. And I'm sure Absalom thought, you know, if I can just get dad to let me come back home, eventually I'll schmooze dad up and get kind of get back into the good graces. And as long as I can get in the inner circle, I'll get things right to get what I want. Absalom is a guy who gets what he wants. He's used to getting his way. He's good at it. So he gets back home. He's also very patient. But he waits two years and he realizes, Dad ain't going to let me back in the inner circle. I've got to push the issue. So he reaches out to Joab again. And in our way of thinking, Joab won't return Absalom's calls. Absalom keeps reaching out, sending messages to Joab. Get me a meeting with my dad. Get me a meeting with my dad. Get me a meeting with my dad. Joab probably knows there's something off about this guy. I don't know why he got used to get Absalom back in town, but once he's back in town, Joab kind of wants nothing to do with Absalom, so he tries to ignore him. Absalom is not a guy who will be ignored. So, so Absalom... Um, sets one of Joab's fields on fire. I don't know if you gathered this while we, when we read this, but that's not normal behavior. Hey, that's the kind of hard-hitting analysis you pay me to bring right there. Absalom is a bully. He, he has no problem resorting to violence, to hurting people, to get what he wants. He's, he's that guy that's like, hey, let me show you what it's like if you are not on my side. He burns Joab's field down. And even though he's the top military commander in Israel, there's something in Joab that's like, I don't want to be opposed to this guy. I would rather give in and cave. So he does. He pulls the strings. He gets Absalom an audience with his dad, King David. And then David caves. The very last thing we see where it says Absalom, he, he pretends to be all submissive to David. And then David kisses Absalom. That is the kiss of the restoration of their relationship. He's back in. David caved by probably allowing him to survive after he murdered his brother. He caves and allowing him to come back to Jerusalem. He caves again now by letting him back in the family. And Absalom is just always this guy that has enough support that he has to be taken seriously. And people know he's not just talking. He will make good on whatever threats he threatens. And that's the end of our rather bizarre story. I mentioned at the beginning, though, that, that this, is, this is applicable to us. This is, this is I find this story very contemporary. And so I want to visit with you just about two things from this story that I think each of us can take home with us. And here they are. First, I'm going to say this this way. The Bible is not a spreadsheet. So we have to be very careful when we're trying to apply form, formulas from it. 
into our life. Here's what I mean by that. You ever use a spreadsheet like Microsoft Excel or something like that? Great programs. Here's what makes spreadsheets great. Okay, so it's this big sheet with all these rows and columns, and you can fill these rows up with all of your data, your, 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 your numbers. And then at the end of all these rows in a column, you can apply a, a formula to this column, and then whatever you tell that formula to do, it'll take all of those different rows and apply the same formula, and you'll just get this, this magical result. If you want them all added up, bang, it's right there. If you want them averaged, put that formula, it'll do that. There's lots of other formulas you can use, but I don't understand math so good. So we're just going to use adding and averaging. That's about as far as I go. And you can apply the same formula in every spreadsheet. And as long as you have good data, it will work the same way every time. Now listen, life's not a spreadsheet. The Bible's not a spreadsheet, and, and we can't use the Scriptures formulaically as if it were. Here's how I see this in this story. Joab tries to apply the Nathan formula to this David and Absalom situation, which is a different situation. God sent, Joab does this, hey, God sent Nathan in, to tell David a story that wasn't true. And God used an untrue story to change David's mind. So that must mean that's okay. I can do the same thing and nobody can tell me I'm doing anything wrong because I'm doing something God did first. But the situations are not the same. When God sent Nathan the prophet in to tell David that story, what was God pursuing? What was Nathan pursuing? They were pursuing David. They were pursuing David's heart. And to get David's heart, David had to confess his sin and repent. Joab and maybe Absalom kind of pulling the strings behind the scenes. But certainly Joab, when he tries to apply the Nathan formula, Nathan formula here, what is he trying to get when he sends the woman in to tell the story? He's just trying to get what he wants. And these are not the same situations. In the story, there's a level of deception and truth bending in the story the woman of Tekoa tells. For one thing, in the story she tells, she is going to be this, the, the poor widow who's left desolate. And then she says, this is what you're doing to Israel. Well, one problem, David's got lots of other sons. Israel's not going to be left desolate without Absalom. Right? There's lots, if you think through it, there's lots of differences. There's lots of reasons why Israel doesn't need Absalom to come home. But the biggest difference is this. God was pursuing David's heart. God wanted David to confess and David to repent and then relationship could be restored. 
Joab, if he wanted to apply the David formula, he should have applied it to Absalom. That's who needed to confess and to repent. And then we'll see if restoration is possible. For us, it's very easy to make this same mistake. It's very easy to find a verse, a story, a process, a concept in the scriptures and just use it to try to get what I want. This, it's not a spreadsheet. Life's, maybe life is not a spreadsheet and the Bible's not a collection of formulas. We could probably think of lots of ways that can be done. I'll just give you one example for time's sake. There's a passage of Scripture in the book of Matthew, chapter 18. It's usually called the church discipline uh, passage, but it's, it's more than that. It's this, it's this process Jesus lays out for us, what we should do when someone we are close to is sinning in a way where like our relationship is not going to be able to continue like this. And so Jesus lays out this wonderful process. Go to them in private. Tell them what they've done. Maybe they'll confess and repent and then we restore the relationship. If that doesn't work, you take a couple people with you. And, and hopefully that, that will, you know, all the facts can be uh, established and what's true can be discovered. And then maybe the confession that needs to take place can take place, repentance and restoration. Now, there are these really sad situations, David, David says, or excuse me, Jesus says, in Matthew 18, where, you know, you go through the whole process and that person you're approaching just tells you to kick rocks. And then the relationship has to change. Jesus says, treat them like a Gentile and a tax collector, which does not mean be really mean and terrible to them, because that's not how Jesus wanted people to, to treat Gentiles and tax collectors. But there's some things, there's some things I do with my brother that I don't do with a Gentile and tax collector. There's distance in the relationship, okay? In my experience, let me tell you how that process that God gave us more often than not gets used. It gets used this way. Someone has an individual or maybe a church has a person that they want to be done with. Okay, I want to be out of this relationship. I want to kick this person out of my church. And I've already made the decision, that's what I want. But I want to make it look like I'm being biblical about this. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to that person alone, tell them in some, tell them in some way what they're doing wrong, knowing they're going to tell me to kick rocks. I'm going to take two people with me that I know will agree with me so that that person will tell all three of us to pound sand, right? I'll take the circle out wider, and then I can get what I want, which I can kick this person out of my church, out of my life, out of my company, out of my whatever. And because I looked like I did Matthew 18, nobody can tell me I've done anything wrong because I was biblical about it. Except no, I wasn't. 
Because the heart of that passage is to seek the heart of another person so that they'll confess and repent so reconciliation can take place. It's not the hoops I, it's not given to be the hoops I jump through to kick people out of my life. That is taking something given to us in the Bible and using it just to try and get what I want. We do this any time we use the Bible to get what we want more than we use the Bible as this mirror that I'm supposed to hold up to show me how I don't look like Jesus, to change me so that I can go truly love someone else, which of course, as always means, to try to see what God says is best happening in that person's life. And any time I use the Bible, just try to get what I want without that. My spreadsheet should just say error. Second, from this, from this chapter, I think we learned this, that we should never confuse forgiveness with things like apathy or validation or uh, endorsement. And here's why I see that in the, in the chapter, in the story we read. In this whole scheme, and really two schemes. First, the scheme to, to convince David to let Absalom come home. And then the scheme to get David to admit Absalom back into the inner circle, back into the royal family. There's, there's this air, this feeling of, some of it is said overtly, and some of it is, I think, just kind of understood. But it feels like people are saying this to David. Come on, David. I mean, it's been a long time. Let's let bygones be bygones. And, you know, everybody dies. It's not like Amnon didn't have it coming. You can't put the water back in the bottle. You can't bring him back. And also, who are you, David? To come down on someone for causing the wrongful death of another person. Didn't you do that? I can almost hear the woman of Tekoa saying, and if it had been written during her day, I think she would have said it. Judge not, lest ye be judged. When God pursues, again, when God pursues sinners like David, and he does, but God pursues sinners to fix his relationship with them and it always requires our confession and repentance. That's what's missing in this story on Absalom's side. Absalom wants the restoration. Absalom wants the forgiveness. But Absalom never offers what's required on his part. And for our lives, here's where I see that, where we need this idea and this information today, because this is what we need to visit about every time we hear someone quote what I am convinced is the non-believer's favorite Bible verse. You know what that is? I just said it a second ago. Judge not, lest ye be judged. 
when someone says that, they're confusing forgiveness with apathy or validation or endorsement. Here's what I mean. There's a situation where either someone wants to be able to continue in their own sin or someone has a certain sort of sin that they don't want to hear be called sin. And they'll quote that verse. Hey, judge not lest ye be judged. For some reason, we always quote it out of the King James, even though very few of us have a King James. But Jesus did say, do not judge or else you will be judged. And we think that is like the mic drop in the conversation, like it's going to stop all argument because you can't tell me my sin is sin because you sin. So see, stop telling me my sin is sinning. They're confusing. That is a confusion of forgiveness with apathy and validation and endorsement. First, I don't have time to teach through Matthew chapter 7, but the whole purpose of that paragraph that Jesus started judge not lest ye be judged, is to teach us how to judge well. It's not to teach us you can never make any kind of discernment about what is sin and what is not sin. That's preposterous. The Bible is full of situations where we have to decide that's wrong, that's right. In the same sermon later, Jesus tells us how to recognize false teachers and then tells us to avoid them. How are you supposed to do that without making a judgment? Judge not, lest ye be judged. And Jesus says, just make sure you take the log out of your eye, but listen, so you can see clearly to see the speck in your brother's eye. So you can judge well. Here's the teaching. If you want to do judgment so you can feel superior... So you can tell somebody how lousy they are. So you can kick them out of your life. So you can whatever. You're doing it wrong. That's the plank. The self-righteousness. The condemnation. That's wrong. Jesus, just remember, like, you are a sinner too. So take the, 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 take the self-righteousness and condemnation out of your eye. So you can, with love, go to your brother and say, listen, I know, I, I know I am a sinner, but here's something that's going on in your life that you need help with. And I'm here because I love you, not because I want to condemn you. Right? God still hates sin. He hates mine and he hates yours. God is never apathetic about sin. He has not stopped calling sin, sin, nor should we. What David should have done before there was any relationship with his son, he should have done what God did to him, which is, I love you. I want you, however this might have to work. There might still have to be consequences, Absalom, but you have to understand God, that you are not pursuing what God says is best. And we've, we've got to see that for this relationship to move forward. Real love is wanting to see what God says is best happening in someone else's life. And I am not being loving 
if, if I know something that God says is, is bad, is happening in that person's life, and I just decide to call what they are doing okay or good or whatever. On Absalom's part, there's a confusion of what forgiveness means, what love is, and, and being apathetic towards sin or validating it or sweeping it under the rug or anything like that. So be careful when applying things out of the Bible and using it as a way to get what I want. But at the same time, don't be apathetic or validate what is wrong to keep the peace. Because God's heart, just like it was with David, God's heart is for people to confess and to repent. And when that happens, for restoration to come with it. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so glad that you pursue sinners because here we are. God, we are so glad that even though you, you hate our sin even more than we do, that you still have made a way to, to open yourself up to love people like us. And thank you that the righteousness of Christ stands in our place, that we don't have to try to, to meet the bar of righteousness that he met on our behalf. But Lord, now we're down here in this world that is full of sin and our homes that are full of sin. And it's really hard for us to know when to confront, when to be passive, how to confront when it is time so God, will you help us to not be confused about forgiveness and restoration and, and apathy and endorsement, to not just try to use the Bible to get what we want, but to use the Bible to shape us into people who are more like your son, that we might pursue others the way he did in spite of their sin, to reach out with real love that others might be restored to to the desire of nations, the Lord Jesus. We love you, Lord. Give us wisdom while we walk down here. In his name we pray, amen. Stand up with us and we'll finish our time together. What